rave on it's a crazy feeling and i know you've got me hello welcome back to the limehouse uh, podcast uh this is uh i think there's a spirit of buddy holly uh flowing through me there it it should flow through all of you all the time it's a it's a beautiful thing you've got five minutes of this okay just five minutes of me talking to you about the show and what's happening this week which I think is important. We'll give you an idea of what's ahead. But more importantly, how are the, how in the hell have you been? How have you been? I've been okay. And if you're new to this show, welcome, hello. I hope you're good. I hope life is treating you with some semblance of respect and you're getting some kind of validity out of life or you're feeling uh, wanted or loved. If not, do something about it that... Uh, is, is, is uh, I don't know, proactive and make that change. Be the, cha- be the change you want to be. Jeez, don't know where that came from. Anyway, this week on the Limehouse podcast, Julian Sancton. So, blah, blah, blah. long story short, I got recommended this book by Michael Palin. For those of you who haven't checked out that conversation on, uh, on the Limehouse podcast, I had a, a very, very good one with... Uh, with, with Michael, yes. He recommended The Madhouse at the End of the Earth, which is the subject of this episode. So when you're recommended something by you know Michael Palin, you do it. You do what you're freaking told. Do, do what you're told. Palin's telling you to, to read a book. You freaking do it. You, 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 otherwise, you, you know, you might nail your head to the floor. Monty Python reference. So... Yeah, th- again, this is on the same lines as that conversation, except it's about a different ship, and it's w- it's a it's a wacky as all hell book. So Julian has written this wonderful book called Madhouse at the End of the Earth. As you know, I'm a keen audiobook uh, listener. I love my audiobooks. It's uh, one of those things. You know, I love reading. I love. Re- I still like reading a physical book, but I listen to this. So I listen to this at night. I listen to this during the day. It, it travelled with me. This book. It is so engaging. It's it's such a romantic, but tragic, and bold story about um, the Belgica HMS. But well, not HMS. But but, but <laughs> the Belgica, which is a Belgian ship and an exploration that, that set off. Um, I, I I don't know. I don't. Do you know what? It's set off with the hope of, of taking this small, tiny country of Belgium to the top of the exploration list of achievements, which up until then had really just been dominated by a, lot, a whole host of other countries, mainly Great Britain and what have you. But for the, for the Belgians to do this was extraordinary. And the achievements were really, they're not very well known to you, I suppose, maybe, because when you think of exploration, I, you know, I do think of people like Shackleton or Scott or Anmundsen, uh, the Norwegian. And I, it was a very, it was a new, a unique and very new story to me. So when I started reading, every page was, was very explorative. There you go. In, in a new sense. So you're learning and, and you're questioning all the time. And I tell you, some of the hardships and the madness that comes out of this story is it's like nothing you've ever read before. It will blow your mind. If you like stories, this is it. It really is. And it's set in a time just on the cusp before the heroic age ended. 
and uh, the modern industrial age sort of of exploration began. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. And um, there's lots of references to other um, explorers and stuff within within this book. So it's, and Julian is such a lovely guy. We had such a lovely chat. He's he's a super he's a super geek in the in the in the, in the loveliest sense. I'm a super geek. I love this kind of stuff. And we had a good we had a good old chat. Good old yarn. So yeah, look look after yourselves. That's just almost you know like maybe a half a half a second left here half a half a minute rather um if you if you are interested in more episodes like i said there's the michael palin conversation out there for you that's a really good companion to this one and uh, if you if like me you're into other things like rock and roll and what have you why not check out my conversation with peter hayes from the black river motorcycle club that is um that's probably my all-time favorite conversation right there so yeah do do check that out if you can and i'll see you on twitter at limehouse pod or i'm on instagram just the limehouse podcast there yeah so gosh i don't know without with, with any further ado look enjoy my conversation with julian sancton buy the book give it get it in your ears madhouse at the end of the earth madhouse at the end of the earth So yeah, yeah, it's mental how I got to get got to read your book. I've never, I've never been recommended a book by a Python before. So I've never, I've never been, believe it or not, never been recommended by a Python before. <laughs> so uh, no, that was that was such a hoot when uh, when I read that. Um, he'd written something for uh, I guess iNews or something, uh, yeah. and I, I saw that, and he's just always been such a great hero of mine. Um, of uh, I, you know, I, I learned uh, so many of his and uh, and, and uh, Python sketches by heart, and you know, right. doing with my friends, and then here he is not on, not only uh, recommending the book, but comparing it to a Python sketch. I, was, I had to rub my eyes, make sure I wasn't, you know, yeah. still dreaming. But do you reference him in the book? I do actually. You yeah, do like yeah. It's quite cool uh, that. He, I ref- he was in a footnote, but um, but his book Erebus. Uh, I actually mentioned his name when he he talks about uh, GP um, the uh, the effort to chart the uh, magnetic variation and, and declination uh, across the Antarctic uh, as a, a kind of um, I guess nineteenth century GPS is the phrase he uses. And, yes, uh, yeah. So I mentioned him there, but but Erebus in general is such a. a uh, uh, it w- was a really important read for me, an important source, because I guess the James Clerk Ross expedition um, served as a model of uh, how this could be done right. And then the Franklin expedition served as a model of how polar exploration, exploration could go horribly wrong. So both of them sort of loom large in the background um, of anybody interested in polar exploration. So that was it was just a really useful source. And he managed to imbue it with humor and, uh, you know, that... That theme, he found that diary about the guy who keeps on taking pot shots at birds. It's just it becomes so perverse and it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and then I see echoes of that in the Belgica, where where these guys are taking shots at albatrosses, and it seems to have been a kind of a theme. But um, well, it's like it's like it's like an episode from The Simpsons where you've got like these 
like Mr. Burns or Homer. You can just imagine Homer yeah. just shooting birds out the sky oh, yeah. and going, I'm so sad. Oh, and then eating <laughs> it or something. And then, and, you know, it, it's it's obscene, like some of it. But I get it. It's like a, it's it's part and parcel of the the, the era in which uh, those guys lived and value yeah, of, there was, of life. I guess there wasn't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they definitely valued life, uh, but they valued it differently. It was in the service of humanity, but they, um, you know, factory farming didn't exist at the time. So you could, you know, there was, um, we could say that, yeah, we may, may have more sensitivity in some respects, but but there was a different approach to wildlife in that time. And yeah. I think they were aware uh, of the consequences of, for example, um, you know, uh, just unregulated um, and, and uh, unconstrained uh, massacre of, of, of animals for, for uh, you know, for example, fur seals that yeah. had been almost entirely eradicated. Um, and, and I think that definitely was, was, was seen as, as a, a tragedy even in those days. Uh, but, but yeah, the idea of seeing something fly and wanting to shoot it, um, it's just, I kind of feel that too. I'm not even into hunting, but um, I, I, if I had a gun and something passes me and there wasn't this great moral taboo about it, I think I probably might fire at it too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I think like, I'm, I remember like it's all down to the individual, isn't it? I remember kicking a football into a hedge once and a bunch of little tiny fledgling little birds fell out of it and I nearly fucking died. Oh, well, um, yeah. Well, no, I mean, like, yeah. again, I'm imagining being in their time. The one time I right. I was in a, in a remotely similar situation, my aunt in Mississippi uh, told me to just to occupy that there wasn't a TV there uh, or they t- or it wasn't working or something. Um, and they she gave me a BB gun. She says, oh, we got a real pigeon problem. Why don't you take care of it? And you know, I'd never killed an animal bigger than an ant in my life, and even then, I probably felt bad. And I found, uh, I, I you know, I saw a pigeon in the corner, and I've always been a crack shot with a BB gun. And I uh, took a few plugs, but you know, I was I was almost crying as I shot. It was like I can imagine opera playing in the background as a, you know, slow motion. Again, that that is an <laughs> that is an actual episode from The Simpsons. Bart does that. He he oh, really? he he, he put, pull, pulls a gun to the left to deliberately miss it, but he correct, <laughs> but he actually he shoot, shoots it because the the aim is the, the sight is out. It's hilarious. <laughs> and and N- Nelson's like, hey man, you sh- you even corrected for the sh- for the uh, sight. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like that's so funny. But um, yeah, uh, so. Because I, the, the one thing about this book is, it, I so I audio booked it and um, I got to oh, to wow. the end. And you you speak about um, uh, your you, you know your journey in getting to to to, to start the, the journey of writing this book. So, yeah. but it's it's quite cool. It's kind of like you fell in love with this, and it almost yeah. you know it's like a calling for you, right, to write this book. Well, in a way, it was just I'd been looking to write uh, a book for a long time. Uh, my, my grandfather's a, no- a writer, or was a, a writer, a novelist, and my uh, father's a journalist and novelist. And, and I, I, it's not like they pushed me into it, but I never really thought that I would do anything else. It just, it took a long time for me to find the topic, but I've been looking for a long time. Weirdly, I'm not a, a particularly good sailor. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm, in fact, I'm not a sailor. I've been on a lot of sailboats, but more as a, as a nuisance than anything. And, um, <laughs> And uh, but all the topics that I were interested in, or a great number of them, were ha- had to do with the sea. They just you know so many great stories come from that. It's just the, you know ex- expeditions and journeys like that have beginnings, middles, and ends. They're inherently yeah. dangerous. Um, there is there, there's yeah. a teamwork involved, and anyway, so all these all these great stories uh, 
made for uh, possible topics for books, but it just seemed like there was they were so um, poorly sourced. I mean, just I mean, there 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 are so many stories about pirates, or uh, there's a few about. I was considering writing about Jean Lafitte, the great uh, Louisiana pirate, or about uh, right. the great female pirates of history, and uh, then or the French corsairs and. Uh, there was there were just such wonderful stories, but the historical record was just too thin. There were so, so, so few primary sources. And then when I chanced upon, as I mentioned in the article, I read a, a magazine article, uh, in the, uh, as I mentioned in the author's notes, sorry, I read a magazine article that talked about NASA's plans for banned missions to Mars and studying the effects of long-term um, space travel uh, and the effects of isolation and uh, confinement, et cetera. And that began with this story of the Belgica as as an earthly analog that has been studied closely for uh, space travel, and just in those few paragraphs, I was just stunned by the 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 uh, how, how gripping the story was and how almost it, it seemed to uh, conform to this Gothic notion of um, of the poles as an inherently maddening place, um, and, and and in that uh, in that very short summary, it mentioned Amundsen, Roald Amundsen. Uh, who is a larger-than-life character that that uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with, and Frederick Cook, who I wasn't familiar with, but this this uh, uh, Barnum-esque American doctor who was infamous for having lied about get, getting to the North Pole later in life and was imprisoned in Leavenworth for running a Ponzi scheme, just a incredible novelistic character. The fact that he this antihero was a hero of uh, of this expedition, I, I just found irresistible. Um, I, I the first thing I did is I called a friend of mine who lives in L.A. He's a screenwriter, and I said, uh, "Man, this is your first movie. You know, this is right. You, you've got to do this." And uh, yeah. he was kind of blasé about it. He agreed it was a great story, but he said, "You know, in, in Hollywood these days, nobody makes anything original. Uh, it's all got to be based on IP." So. Maybe if there were a book, uh, you know, that would make sense. But, and so I, it got me thinking. Well, maybe there, maybe there is a book. Maybe, maybe it's you know, uh, like. Oh and so I, I looked at, yeah. I, I looked into it, and there wasn't. Uh, aside from the narrative written by Frederick Cook, which was the only English language book about it, and as we know, Cook is uh, only about fifty percent reliable. Mm, um, yeah. And then, aside from that, there were a, a couple mentions here and there. Sometimes it's mentioned in uh, as as a. In, in passing uh, about in stories about Roald Amundsen or about the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, but it's just this incredibly um, exciting story and consequential story. And that has never, it turns out as my friend got me searching for it and I didn't find it, there was no book. So I decided to write one. Um, and then um, I, well, before I got there, I decided to check if once again, the historical record was going to be um, too thin and uh it turns out that uh, no, in fact, it was one of the best documented expeditions of the time of the of the eighteen men who left South America uh, aboard the Belgica. Um, obviously, not of them all of them returned, but um, the about a dozen kept some kind of of day to day account, whether it's a log or a diary or a journal. And where was and, where um, was well, where did you find that stuff then? Because I know in, in like Palin and Michael yeah. Palin and all that, they they kind of did they. Um, you know there are records and a plenty. Uh, yeah. he spent hours days at the Admiralty. Yeah, right. He yeah. mostly was. Did he did he find his stuff mostly at the Admiralty records or in Greenwich or? Yeah, yeah, and and then some in yeah. Barnes as well in South Southwest London as well. It's like incredible records right, you can right. find. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, those were all under the auspices of the of the Royal Navy, right? Um, the, the, those expeditions. So that I mean, they would be inherently well documented. My, I uh, I found archives all over the world. Actually, um, Cook's papers were really useful. Uh, he was a, a prolific writer and very talented writer. Um, again, uh, prone to embellishment, but, uh, right. but a good writer. Yeah. And, um, and and so his uh, his records were kept at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Now, I never actually went there. I just in, did interlibrary loan, and they sent me rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls of microfilm uh, at the New York wow. Public Library. So uh, I spent a long time there just sort of scrolling through microfilms and uh, various drafts of his unpublished memoirs. And uh, it was just fascinating stuff. He was just such a beautiful thinker and uh, for all his faults was a really generous soul and empathetic soul who would have been um, uh, very happy to see how uh, people's attitudes towards indigenous people have changed towards the yeah. questioning of of um, you know western wisdom and um, yeah. you know he, I, I would have loved to have a conversation with him and those that, that experience of researching yeah it, it would have been something for sure yeah, well, he, I, I would have loved to have a beer with him, but I don't think he was a big drinker. Um, he was, um, the, the Belgians were all uh, absolutely, uh, they were a bibulous people. Um, but uh, but he, was, he was a Methodist, even though he wasn't particularly, especially religious, I don't think he, that was one of his vices. Um, but yeah. but to, um, to go back to the other, uh, the question about where, where else I found I found stuff. Uh, Oslo, because of the involvement of Amundsen, um, what is um, was one very important source. That's why. Could you I just got, um, could you just give a little bit of background on Amundsen? I know it sounds daft, but some people that probably wouldn't know yeah. necessarily. Oh, of who course, he is yeah. Amundsen, stuff. Roald Amundsen. Sure, yeah. Roald Amundsen was a uh, Norwegian explorer who. Um, was a little younger than Cook. He was probably in his mid to, he was in, I think he was 26 and turned 27 aboard the Belgica. He was the Belgica's first mate. And he didn't really have that much experience, but um, the Belgica's captain, uh, whose name is Adrien de Gerlache, um, was, um, uh, saw that um, he, he had received an application from this, this aspiring explorer and um saw that uh he was really can i wait can i can we put a pin in that i'm sorry um, i'm getting yeah, yeah. i have to I, i'm being asked to move locations is that possible <laughs> yeah man yeah. yeah yeah let's pause it hang on so let me restart that answer again if that's okay yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, so um, uh, Roald Amundsen was a, a Norwegian explorer who was in his mid-20s at this time uh, in, in, the, um, in 1897 when the Belgica left from Antwerp. And uh, he was the Belgica's first mate, which was actually a strange choice because he was Norwegian and the Belgica expedition was uh, promoted as a national... Uh, nationalist is maybe too loaded a word, but as a national endeavor. And uh, the fact that the first mate who, according to maritime custom, would inherit the command of the ship should anything happen to the commander and the captain, um, the fact that he was a Norwegian was a, a great cause for concern among a lot of uh, 
people in the both aboard the Belgica and uh, observers in Belgium. And yet uh, it was a great choice because uh, he was such a, a, an indisputably qualified um, uh, explorer, adventurer, uh, crew he member. He was committed, he, right? <laughs> he was committed. He had, from a very young age, um, inspired by the narratives of such uh, explorers as John Franklin um, and uh, Friedhof Nansen, um, who Franklin, as an example of somebody who uh, suffered tremendously and, and ran into a lot of, uh, of hardship and obstacles, um, for some reason that inspired uh, Amundsen. Amundsen said it was this, it was the suffering uh, that I aspired to, uh, which is a very telling comment and strangely masochistic. But uh, very, and then the other one strange. was his own his own um, com- his own compatriot Friedhof Nansen, who had uh, who had. Uh, accomplished a, a few just uh, <laughs> mind-boggling exploits of, of Arctic exploration. So um, Amundsen, as a teenager, uh, revered these figures and, and vowed that he would become himself the uh, uh, you know a, a great polar explorer. And so to that end, he, in uh, for example, he, he um, trained himself. He was not good at anything else not particularly good at school. He was not particularly interested in uh, women or men. Uh, uh, and uh, there is a, uh, you know, he tells a story about sleeping with his window open in winter uh, in Oslo. I love that. I love that story. To himself to the cold. Yeah. It's great. And then the other the other story, uh, sort of the, the other um, rite of passage for him, the other uh, uh, great coming of age story is when he and his brother endeavor to cross the. Uh, I'm not going to pr- attempt to pronounce it, but it's a, a plateau above uh, north of north of Oslo that was a dead ringer for the Arctic, and yeah. the two of them tried to cross it. And he was he unwisely fell asleep during a snowstorm and was entombed in snow, and um, and his brother it, it, it iced up around him. It became an icy sarcophagus, and his brother uh, barely. Um, found him before he suffocated so those didn't uh those didn't discourage him in fact they encouraged him from continuing in this vein and so he um he saw him he saw the belgica expedition which um he had heard of because the belgica uh, herself was a norwegian ship in, uh, originally and um, had been docked in sandefjord and so he sent a uh, letter of uh, application to adrien de jarlache the commander of the belgica and said you know, I've I've been on a number of ships, uh, number, and uh, I have a little bit of Arctic experience, and um, I'm more and I'm a, a, an expert skier. I would love to join the expedition, and so then Dejarlash was intrigued um, by this, particularly the skiing aspect, which he thought was going to be very important in order to reach the South Magnetic Pole. Um, and so, in, in addition to that, it was clear from the uh, the scuttlebutt on him was very good that he had he was just a a bound for for greatness, and so that's how he came aboard. Um, and the background for your listeners who may not be familiar with Amundsen is that he ended up uh, living up to that promise very much so uh, by not only uh, being the first man to the South Pole and beating uh, Captain Scott to that, um, and, but also being the first to blaze the Northwest Passage from uh, the Atlantic to the. Uh, to the the Pacific via the Canadian Arctic, uh, which was which had uh, el- eluded many uh, an explorer before him, and led to th- that's what Franklin had been after, and what what led to his doom. And, 
uh, many others. And uh, he managed to pull that off. And then if, uh, as I believe, and, and, and uh, I believe it's also the, the, uh, um, the majority, majority view, if neither Frederick Cook nor um, Robert Perry, the two Americans who claimed to get to the pole, the North Pole first, if neither of them made it, um, and Admiral, Admiral uh, Byrd didn't make it, um, which is also uh, likely, it seems like he had uh, he tried to fly over the Arctic. It seems like he yeah. might have falsified his his exploit. Um, if that's the case, then then Amundsen was also the first man to the North Pole, which he reached uh, in an airship in the uh, 1920s. So yeah. uh, Amundsen reached the, in in so doing. That's the trifecta of of uh, polar exploration: uh, the right. South Pole, the North Pole, the Northwest Passage. So he was, uh, yeah, you know, by by uh, right. Yeah, uh, on paper, he's the, uh, the the greatest polar explorer who ever lived. I mean, you can debate the uh, the relative romanticism and heroism uh, heroism of um, of Shackleton, uh, who was certainly a more uh, I don't know, lovable character and, uh, and 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 a hero in his in his own right, and I think uh, probably a, a more beloved leader. Um, mm. But but he he never actually. It's easy to forget that Shackleton never reached his objective. Yeah, no, but I mean, I suppose his suffering and his and getting back to civilization, Shackleton's was just yeah. so extraordinary that it was in in that and in and of itself is just some, something to behold. I mean that yeah that, it, the, that book Endurance. Um, I've forgotten the name of the guy who wrote yeah. that now. Um, but God, uh, that Jesus. that is um, uh, Alfred Lansing, I believe. Let me see if I that yeah yeah it. yeah yeah that's that's an extraordinary book. Like and that that's extraordinary. Story. No, no, I think I think Sha- I think Shackleton's a more admirable character. Honestly, I didn't I didn't really uh, come to like Amundsen all that much. Um, he's really that, it is a hard. That's and, interesting that yeah. you say that because I uh, I I don't know what it is. I think the way you paint the relationship between Amundsen and Cook, like they. I, they just seem like in a film, in a cinematic sense, I can see those two being the compass, you know, of of survival. Yeah. I know that I know that Armisen and Cook were yeah. definitely different um, when the shit got real, uh, so to speak, uh, on the Belgica. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I still really, I I really enjoyed your portrayal of Armisen's. Uh, you know who he who he was his role in that yeah. sh- on on the ship. You know maybe it's because yeah. he was still quite young. I don't know. I think it's definitely he changed over time. He became more paranoid. He became more uh, bitter and embattled. And uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's kind of like uh, Alexander when he uh, when he runs out of lands to conquer. Uh, he yeah. wept, uh, and, and the fact that Amundsen didn't weep, he raged. He turned on everybody who had ever assisted him. He he, he uh, made enemies of friends and um, turned on everyone except for Cook. So, uh, who, to whom he was loyal for uh, you yeah. know even as the as uh, the shit went down um, with with Cook. So um, and, and so I found that super poignant. Uh, but but I don't know that um, that uh, you know to, again that comparison between. I think the comparison shouldn't be between Amundsen and Scott, although it's easy to compare the two. Uh, but between Amundsen and Shackleton as as leaders, uh, Shackleton uh, was cook-like in his in his um, concern for his fellow men, and mm. um, and so I th- and and Amundsen was certainly concerned for them, but he didn't he didn't inspire them the way Shackleton did, I, I believe, and and I certainly and he was. Uh, 
Yeah, his his uh, he, he's not a great, particularly good storyteller, uh, mm. which I think is also a big aspect of this. It's an exploration at this time was both an athletic act and and a and an almost a literary act. Um, and he, I, I, yeah. Was, Sorry, just, I I just think personally, he, yeah, Armisen's very much a singular character. Right, he's out for his own, his own game to a degree. He, you know, kind of like he, yeah. he, he can use people certainly to get what his his own ends, but ultimately yeah, he's yeah. just out for himself. Which which does um, it kind of works a, a little bit in the Belgica, but in the situation they got themselves into. But you take him out of that situation, yeah. and, you know, over time it's going to get bad. But. Um, Sorry, you were just hunting around there at your yeah. bookshelf. I thought you were going to make another point no, or something. I, I was trying to find. There's a biography. There's a biography of uh, Amundsen, which I highly recommend, called Roald Amundsen. And I'm trying to find. The, I believe the name of the author is uh, Tor Bowman Larsen, um, yeah. but I can't seem to find it here. But anyway, it, from that book, it uh, it it paints a, a really. And I drew from this uh, from this book to to um, help paint the uh, the the portrait of Amundsen. But it was. It becomes clear uh, the extent to which he just became such a uh, controversial figure, both both in Norway mm-hmm. and especially in, in England, where he, um, he he felt he should have been celebrated more. But and and, and oh, um, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, would he be celebrated now? Well, like, it, it, if if there were such a thing as um, you know, if there were any more worlds to conquer within within the you know. The, the planet, but I, I well, just maybe I don't know. It, it's sorry. I mean, in terms of like the UK, you know, England versus Norway, and in terms of where we are politically now, is it as a it. little? A, we're a tiny, shitty little. Well, they were allies then. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, they were certainly allies then, and in fact, his great hero Friedhof Nansen was a diplomat who tried very hard to. Uh, restore the um, relations after actually the um, Amundsen's uh, behavior towards the Geographical Society actually caused a bit of a diplomatic crisis. Um, mm. But they were allies then, they're allies now. Uh, but I think polar exploration is no longer, it's no longer uh, such a matter of, uh, of nationalistic pride. It's more of a collaboration for one thing. It's or individual exploits, but they're, uh, they're just as likely to be part of international teams or to it's less associated with their country and and also exploration these days as my uh, friend scott anderson puts it it's um you know the, the the records have gotten more and more absurd it's like oh the first man to the to the north pole on a pogo stick or uh, right for sure know. yeah 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 <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but back then it seemed like you know you were really um uh, not only were you literally seeing uh land that nobody had ever seen before uh, but you were getting there um, uh, by the, the the most sensible means possible. Um, yeah, it's but it, uh, it but is, again, that's not that you know the the Belgica. It's a, that's different from the Belgica story. But um, yeah, but it's an interesting um, sort of side. So the the because uh, I I mean it's it, we could literally sit here and just talk about every single individual character. Yeah. But yeah, it would yeah. probably good luck take editing us, this, by the way. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It'd take like an entire entire book. Let's do an audio book, you know. Um, but Delash yeah. is quite uh, is, is an in, interesting um, character in, in because of the way he raised the funds and um, the popularity for the expedition in the first place. Um, yeah. Do you do, do you find? I mean, it's, it's because there's for me there's like the big the 
galash at the beginning and then at the end and what yeah. the expedition has done to him yeah. right and it's pretty yeah. it's pretty heartbreaking really i think but it you could I suppose start at the beginning and 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 why why he yeah. felt the need to to do it Well, it was a, definitely certainly a strange aspiration for a Belgian aristocrat in his late twenties to uh, feel like uh, the the Antarctic was his prize to claim. Um, yeah. You know that you know it, it, very few expeditions had had uh, spent any significant amount of time there. It was uh, the, the, the the geographical societies of the world had agreed that the exploration of the Antarctic was uh, of the utmost urgency. And of all people to take that challenge, it was this uh, little-known, uh, untested Belgian um, naval lieutenant named uh, named Adrien de Gerlache. Um and, and it's strange. You say that so well, uh, man. That's so. It's so. It's very. It's very drippy and sexy uh, off your off well, your tongue, my friend. <laughs> oh, why? Thank you. No, uh, I'm, I'm uh, my my. Um, I grew up partly in France, and my mother's French, so there's no oh, there's no there credit, there's no credit to be had, but. Um, but um, but no, so it's it's a uh, it's strange not just because he was it, you know he, he was unknown or untested, but because Belgium Belgium did not have much of a maritime presence to speak of. It was really um, after they after Belgium split from the the Netherlands in 1830 and the, the, the Belgian Revolution, uh, the the navy. Uh, that uh, the uh, of the, the what was called the Low Countries um, was basically became the Dutch Navy, and then there was a, a bare bones merchant marine. There was a you know uh, some some you know, fishing fleets, but really it was there was only forty miles of coastline in the entire country. It's really not a, it was not a, a particular uh, particularly daunting naval power, and so uh, in any Belgian worth his salt would have uh, probably been more likely to seek adventure and fortune in the Congo rather than uh, in the Antarctic. So it was very hard for De Jolesh to assemble a, uh, a, a fully Belgian crew, um, which is largely why he, he uh, came to rely on a, um, a, a, Nor a crew that was made up um, by 50%, 50, 50, the 50% 50 of which was made up by Norwegians. Um, yeah. And so, um, and he also couldn't fund, because it was it, it was considered to be such a poorly funded and organized expedition at first, uh, fairly or unfairly, many of the Belgian scientists who at first were excited by the possibility of documenting the flora and fauna and, and uh, geology and uh, uh, meteorology, et cetera, of the Antarctic uh, backed out, uh, and um, a, a, as it, it took more time to organize this, and people wondered whether it, we would ever leave it all. And so, uh, the scientists then became, uh, you know, Dijalash had to turn to Eastern European scientists. And uh, finally, we know uh, at the last minute, he since he a, a number of doctors uh, of ship surgeons had uh, either backed out or been uh, forced forced out of the expedition. He had to rely on the American Dr. Cook, and so it was. Um, uh, it was uh, seen for him. Uh, he was happy that his expedition was able to leave uh, at all, but he was also nervous about what people, the reaction would be back home, that mm. the Belgian Antarctic expedition was, uh, you know, only fifty percent Belgian, Belgian, and if anything should happen, which it did. Uh, 
uh, after there was after a series of uh, disciplinary instances, uh, disciplinary, um, uh, I guess, breaches and um, and a near mutiny. He kicked a few of the Belgians off, and so they were outnumbered uh, yeah, by yeah, non-Belgians. It's quite funny. Uh, and so, and so, yeah. And he was terrified about the about the Belgian press. I think he was more scared of the Belgian press than he was of the Antarctic. And so yeah. he, uh, that's so that is the state at which he left uh, Belgium. And when uh, he realized that he was not going to be able to achieve the ends, uh, the the goals that he had set out for the expedition, or at least all of them, he was. Uh, by by February 1898, the expedition had had um, explored, had studied the uh, a, a good stretch, a good long stretch of um, the Antarctic Peninsula, and in fact, uh, it was a uh, a they, they discovered what is now known as the the Gerlach Strait. Uh, so that's a you know any explorer uh, sh- would should be quite uh, proud of that accomplishment to well, discover. Well, anyway. yeah, it, it, um, it's it's really funny but, because uh, you know, sorry, you you base, but you know after reading Michael's no, book, no, I'll go on after, book, but yeah, I and I, I you know and then you go on. <laughs> this sounds ridiculous. You go on Google Maps or whatever, and you know you look up the the coastline yeah. and the inlays and whatever of um, Antarctica um, and and. You yeah. see these different names, and after reading these various books, they suddenly start. It's unbelievable. They're literally just going from, you know, oh, yeah. we've rounded, we've rounded this bay. We'll name that, you know, William Porteous Island, or we've rounded that one. Let's name it after our sponsor, yeah. Julian Sancton. You know, let's name Julian Sancton Island. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's how they did it. You know. It, well, yeah. Well, there's no, there was no uh, governing body that was sa- said you're not allowed to name this land, uh, you know, uh, wh- whatever you want, or you know, th- this was completely virgin territory. Uh, and so, yeah. um, and the way it's done is not exactly the way you describe. It's not like, oh, I just rounded this, so I'm going to name it that. They, <laughs> it's at the end of the expedition when they realized that uh, when they finally have a, a list of all of the different geographical features and coasts and islands and images, um, then they decide to apportion it in um, kind of in order of importance. So, um, yeah. you know, the Dujralash as the commander, as, as the originator of this expedition, uh, got the lion's, got to name the lion's share of uh, of geographical features, as such that the uh, you know the the hundred a hundred mile uh, stretch of the Antarctic Peninsula now uh, on a map looks like a map of Belgium if Belgium had a much more dramatic landscape. Uh, right. And, yeah. But uh, but also and then they and then he gave each crew member the chance to or each officer I should say the chance to name two islands, which is why there's now also a Brooklyn Island, um, which is uh, Cook's Cook, hometown. Yeah. And yeah. uh, and a Van Wyck Island, and that's named if you know for anybody who might have uh, driven to uh, JFK Airport in New York. That's the the Van Wyck Expressway, and that's named after New York's first mayor. So uh, those okay. are two uh, two sort of local uh, local names, uh, you yeah. know, several thousand miles away. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> to get back to to uh, what I was saying about Dujarlash, he even though they had they had explored all. Uh, all that, that, that long stretch and actually it took home a quite a sizable bounty 
uh, not home, they weren't, they weren't home yet, but had taken with them a sizable uh, bounty of scientific data and specimens of plant and animal life. Um, they weren't, it was clear that they had, they, they, there were too many setbacks uh, that had pushed back their, uh, their schedule. They were not going to arrive at the other end of uh, Antarctica in time to be able to land a party who would be able to, to reach the South Magnetic Pole. So uh, that goal, which was for a lot of people, the main goal of the expedition, that was shot. So he decided that rather than come home uh, hmm. with his tail between his legs, he would, um, dis- he would sail as far south as he could in the Bellingshausen Sea um, and even though he knew that, that it was going to almost certainly doom the Belgica to uh, an imprisonment in the ice, it was a reckless decision um, and a deliberate one, which, is, which for, for me is, is quite, um, quite shocking. Um, but I also, I also understand it. You know, he, he realized if he couldn't get to the South Magnetic Pole, he would come back to Belgium if he survived with something even more valuable, which is a, a great story mm. to tell. And yeah. in uh, exploration in those days was was something that w- depended very much on on stories. Um, and and um, this this is another instance in which I'm uh, I, I reference uh, Michael Palin's book, James Clark Ross, who was uh, the the British explorer who who uh, discovered Victoria Land and, and was so successful and in uh, in that expedition in the mid 1800s, um, really didn't he made it seem easy, uh, and there there weren't though though I'm sure it wasn't a, a walk in the park. Uh, he didn't lose a man. Uh, there there weren't um, it, it wasn't the story of suffering that we all expect from Antarctic exploration. And uh, and when he came back, found he had the hardest time getting it published. And somebody told him that. Uh, you know, the Gazette, the Admiralty paper, didn't want to publish it because there was no bloodshed. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I can well and so, and, and that, that is just, it goes against this notion that all of it was driven by science. It, bullshit. It was yeah. driven by adventure. It was, it was, a, a pure, it was a romantic endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. It's like there's no war. So, you know, we, we need something else. There wasn't, not, not yet, but, the, but this whole notion of, um, you know, it was, the nationalism that was driving so many of these expeditions uh, was yeah. a, a symptom of the uh, of this sort of uh, jingoistic buildup that would lead to war. Uh, but but again, yeah. I think Dzerzhelash, even though he even though he under he harnessed those winds, I don't think he was uh, particularly uh, nationalistic himself. And and and, and there, uh, it it seems to be that he was a pacifist as well. So. Um, you know the uh, I think it's to his credit that he he led the first you know inter- truly international scientific expedition certainly to the polar regions um, and so yeah I, I think um, that that aspect of of uh, the the nationalistic atmosphere bef- as as almost of a, a, a sporting contest uh, turning exploration into a a sporting competition bet- between nations I thought was fascinating and I also and, yeah. and it was and Dzerzhelash found a really uh, a really interesting approach to it with his his uh, international crew. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love it, and I, well, I, I suppose what I 
Because I, I read about uh, Shackleton to begin with yeah. in Erebus, and then yeah. uh, obviously your book and the contrast between those expeditions and and you know the Belgica is extraordinary in as in in as much as the the crew you know yeah. that when they get to is it Poitou Ure- <laughs> what yeah. the hell Poitou Uranus when when they you know they, they just go insane just get shit faced they go crazy you know they they have to run up a flag of distress and get the (laughs) the 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 the, the local army in or whatever it is and uh, to 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 sort his own crew out yeah and and weirdly the the, uh the bad apples were all belgian Uh, right so they they felt because again of this nationalistic uh atmosphere and because the they knew how uh uh, concerned de Gerlach was uh, with this um, w- with the the Belgian press and their expectation that this be a Belgian expedition they felt that they um, they were uh, somehow they were able to blackmail him or that they were uh, privileged or that that uh, they were superior to their Norwegian crew crewmates and so um they were able to strong arm him for, uh, for uh, sh- you know, um, shore leave or not for shore leave, but for, for, for money and uh, for advances on their salaries. And they, they assen- uh, essentially they, 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 uh, they were able to stick him up and, uh, yeah. and he, and they, they ran roughshod over him. They were, they were able to just take full advantage of him. He was not a natu- natural, uh, natural disciplinarian and yeah. uh, in the way that uh, Amundsen would prove to be later on. Uh, as as his own expedition leader, and so the, it just it that and the fact that Punta Arenas was um, a, a pretty licentious town at that time. Uh, Cook points out that uh, the Kyber Pass, yeah, yeah, that that Cook points out that people would drink everywhere, including in church, and not just at communion. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that that houses were made of wine bottles. I mean, it's just yeah. who, who knows with Cook whether this is true, but it's such a great image. I'm a man, yeah, he, he extraordinary like storyteller, so good at um, painting the picture for you. But yeah. um, and obviously when they when they leave there, they what it seems to me is like the elements. It's almost like they're trying to tell um, tell them to stop when they get to the that sort of islands. Um, it's like a what is it, a prison, I suppose. What is? Yeah, and then, then yeah. they they can't get the can't the ship. <laughs> Ship runs aground. Yeah, can't, yeah. Can't, can't. I mean, Jesus Christ! You're like, it's it's so hilarious that it, it's it's t- it yeah. is funny. It's it, there is a Python like esque thing to the whole expedition. It's you know, it's yeah. It's, it's just like one one damn thing. It, yeah, it's one damn thing after the other, and um, and and it's hilarious until uh, until people lose their lives. But uh, but even yeah. even after it, just it, it's. I'm not saying it's that. Uh, there's anything funny about what they what they suffered, but they they were able to find humor uh, uh, in, in that. In fact, humor was a great survival strategy for for um, mm. when they were stuck in the ice, and that's something that Cook learned uh, that the most important thing was for them to to not lose hope, to keep their spirits up, and if they fell prey to depression, then their um, their bodies would also uh, would also break down. And uh, sure, that did happen, but it could it, it it could have been a whole lot worse if it hadn't been for Cook's interventions, which um, I think everybody on board uh, credited with with uh, the survival of, uh, of of many of the men. But it was, I mean, that's the thing I suppose that really baffles me on so many of these um, expeditions. I mean, again, I'll just 
keep referencing other, you know. No, but it's, it um, fits in a context. It fits in a historical context. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's like you know when when Shackleton and and his crew, uh, they're they're fleeing for their lives off tiny tiny icebergs that are cracking in half underneath yeah. their tents, and. Yeah. And then you've got this ship that's barely even got anywhere near Antarctica, the, the Belgica, and yeah. and it's almost about to capsize on <laughs> on some reef. It's yeah. and it's all on an absolute knife edge, you know. And that's I, yeah. I think that's what it, it, it's it's a great um, magnet. I think. Well, it goes it goes story. to show how little known uh, so much of the world was then. Even the the, the, the they ran aground the Beagle Channel, which is um, mm. in uh, I guess goes from uh, Chile to Argentina it might it might even be entirely in Argentina but it's in it's in um, it's in Tierra del Fuego and the charts were just unreliable uh, it was yeah. you know Darwin had had been there a few decades before as, as uh, one of the first explorers there um, and it's just uh, it was a different it was a different time and um, and Dujol, it's not to say Dujolash didn't also make some some uh, pretty bad mistakes um, you know, if, if they had been sailing uh, earlier in the day, if they hadn't violated his rule of uh, of uh, 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 heaving anchor before nightfall, then they probably wouldn't have run aground. Yeah, um, it's, I love that. Yeah, the, the constant undermining of his authority and essentially having to just kind of shrug it off because of the because of his own expectation from his own countrymen you know yeah. to, and obviously he said the fear of of the press and what have you that drove him on um yeah there's that to... yeah there's that that great line uh in antarctica when when uh, his captain georges lecointe uh asks him or tells him that the men uh are complaining that the food is terrible and that they're it's got like the woody allen joke is uh, the food is terrible yeah. and, and such small portions such small portions yeah. um and yeah. um and so uh and said well yeah we we do have enough uh but um he was he uh, was afraid that the press would say that, that they had eaten too well on the uh you know on the the, the contributors money and uh, and lequent says i don't give a damn about the press certainly not the antarctic press uh which is a good one <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i love that oh my god yeah you just imagine penguins writing the you know the daily the Daily Express. Yeah. Well, the didn't, I think, uh, I, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I believe that the, um, the, the Shackleton and or Scott's men uh, had kept some kind of a newspaper. They, and, a newspaper they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. Yeah. They did that. Yeah. And, I, uh, I love, I love that. Yeah. And I think that was, it was not uncommon. And I think the, the Belgic, uh, uh, it's, it's been uh, reported that they had their own newspaper. It's not true. Uh, they had one, it wasn't a regular thing, but the the Emil Rekovica, who was the uh, Romanian uh, naturalist, was a great cartoonist, and he had mocked up one little, you know, supposed uh, some uh, I forget what they called. It. Oh, the la- the ladyless South, they called it. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. that was just it was just a bunch of really bawdy cartoons. It wasn't a newspaper, but uh, but certainly they, they did what they could to keep themselves entertained. It was endure. It was on in endurance that they did that. And, you know, it's like, um, and then when the pack ice starts crushing the ship, it starts going a bit wrong, yeah. and the mood the mood shifts ever so slightly. Exactly. Um, it'd be it'd be quite cool to talk about um, the absolute um, title of this book, yeah. Um, yeah. the Madhouse. When yeah. did the Belgica become a madhouse? 
Um, it's you mention I mean, that, technically, it's kind of from the beginning, really, with all the, the crazy drinking and and, and shit and, and shit housing. But yeah. when did it when it when it really got started to get dark? Um, it well, when it got dark. When uh, it got dark. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, that is when when the sun went down. I believe it was May seventeenth, uh, which is also the Norwegian national holiday. Um, and it was, I guess, they toasted to the holiday, but it was definitely a funereal atmosphere because the um, that was the last they would see the sun for a few months. And um, the disappearance of the sun, um, I, I guess, coincided with a, uh, a a plummeting of the of the ship on sh- of the um, onboard mood, and uh, that was uh, also accompanied with a terrible. Uh, you know, physical symptoms of sluggishness and even um, just uh, the early signs of scurvy and um, yeah. and then cognitive um, symptoms as well, brain fog, disorientation, irritability, and all these things that uh, um, are attributed to a multiplicity of factors, but that we uh, we now call uh, winter over syndrome. Um, and all of these things, that's around, uh, around May uh, of, of 1898. And it, it was definitely exacerbated by the death in uh, early June of uh, Dr. Lash's best friend, Emil Danko. Um, it's so sad. That's so heartbreaking, that bit, man. Yeah. Because they were, they were just such, they were so close. It's, that's what you do so well in this book. You really bring those two characters together as, as you know, accentuate their friendship. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it was, um, it, and you can read, Dr. Lash was a, a, a um, in his own account, a pretty honest guy. Um, mm. You know, he would he admitted that he felt terrible guilt for having um, brought Danko down to the Antarctic when he knew that his health wasn't great and uh, that everybody was in this predicament because of uh, his decision to have sailed into the ice. So, uh, yeah, that that added a, a definite poignancy to the moment, which is that Dujarlash felt that he had essentially killed his best friend. Yeah. Um, but so that that is it's after Danko's death that uh, Henrik Arktowski, the Polish meteorologist um, and oceanographer, uses the phrase "We are in a madhouse," and that's where I got the title of the book. Mm. It's also I got the title from uh, that, that in the magazine article that I mentioned that where I first heard about the Belgica in the New Yorker in 2015. You, they, the article referenced the uh, the phrase "madhouse promenade," which is something that okay, appears yeah. in Cook's in Cook's diaries, and that's the way they they referred to the path around the Belgica that uh, the men used to exercise once a day in order to stave off uh, madness and uh, and uh, prevent their muscles from atrophying and just have something to do. And that idea, the yeah. madhouse promenade, for me, that gives me chills. Um, and I, right. it, it just that word stuck with me and yeah. became the title of my book i love it man it's like it, it, it's perfect it's such a great such a great title but um what what you and what what none of us can uh, I, I mean there are very few of us that can ever like possibly liken it to it's it's just it's yeah. extraordinary. I know it's interesting that Franklin's wife, um, the Erebus, you know, she she would stand outside in the freezing cold, right, for like she, until she couldn't bear it anymore, just to get an idea of what her husband was going through at the time when he was away. Yeah, that and is mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, and I I I just 
I can't, I can't get my head around. You know, you do, you do a very, very good job at, at bringing that terror out of the the the, the fear. Thank but you. what's in, what's inter- is interesting is how um, Amundsen and, and and Cook, um, how Cook used um, method and um, activity, no matter how mm. trivial it was, to just keep the men's morale up. Yeah. Um, and um, Amundsen was probably more about just I don't know going out and just drinking seal blood or yeah. something. But um, but because th- I don't want to fast forward too quickly to to the end or give anything away. But it is is it, it well it's, it's you, know, you go on Wikipedia for fuck's sake exactly and it exactly. Out, but, I don't I'm, I'm not worried about giving but, anything away. Um, I, I feel uh, but but um, yeah the the cook cook was an inveterate tinkerer. He always thought from from a very young age he was able to. Uh, Make make objects out of nothing, basically, just mm. and find incredibly elegant solutions to things. He was just such a resourceful guy, in, um, and, and uh, he also when when that was paired with his responsibility as a doctor and his concern for all his fellow men, it just it led to some some uh, really heartening and really inspiring innovations and interventions. Uh, he made it a point to interview everybody on board, which is if it did create these systematic psychological surveys, which is now common practice in, uh, yeah. in such, in such uh, endeavors in both in the, uh, in the polls and also in, uh, in uh, space travel. That's what they, they recommend. They, it's one of the things that actually NASA drew from the, from the cook expedition is this, this idea of the psychological surveys. But in addition to that, he was able to, to, combat scurvy uh, which was thought to have been a disease of the past we you know we all know the solution to scurvy is we drink lemon juice right well uh, or <laughs> lime juice well that was that uh lemon juice certainly would have worked if they had fresh lemons but they didn't and um lime juice all they had was constant lime juice concentrate and uh yeah. thought you know he said what's good enough for the royal navy is good enough for me but uh you know by the time by the, the end of the 19th century, everybody was confident that we had solved scurvy, but, but ocean-going voyages were, were much shortened by the steam engine that uh, yeah. nobody was spending three months, four months, five months at sea anymore. And, um, and so there wasn't a chance for people to, to uh, notice that those solutions were, were not I effective anymore. I love that anymore. detail and that you so, put in. Yeah, and, and so uh, Cook had, was in the position of the first... Uh, some of the, some of the first explorers again you know, of the age of sail and having to uh, combat this dread disease with the, the the means at his disposal and the means at his disposal were wild game uh, the penguins and seals mostly and he reasoned that the Inuit with with whom he had uh, spent some time in the Arctic did not seem to suffer from scurvy despite not eating fresh fruit for much of the year or fresh vegetables or any of the known uh, the cures for scurvy. Uh, he didn't yet know that that it was uh, that vitamin C is is uh, or that scurvy was just a, nothing nothing more than a deficiency of, of vitamin C. But but he reasoned what was good for the Inuit in the Arctic uh, would be good for the uh, the men of the Belgica uh, who were then the only denizens of the Antarctic, and that yeah. uh, is fresh game and and. Uh, which he recommended eating in the Inuit fashion as raw as possible, so that and, and surely enough, as, as as surely as water douses fire, uh, that those who were able to take his recommendations and actually keep the meat down and um, were, were saw their symptoms uh, mitigated. 
if not reversed. Yeah. But um, before before we go, just like what did you take? What what did you like take home the most from this book? Either like a, or learn or emotionally or um, or otherwise. I you know I was almost done writing this book when lo- the uh, pandemic struck and we were all forced into lockdown. And actually, the, a lot of the uh, revision was done under lockdown and I don't know how else I would have been able to do that I had a full-time job at the time um, and I was able to uh, you know avoid the uh, my uh, my boss by, because I was doing all this at home I was able to have long <laughs> long conversations with my editor um, at fr- from this office here um, and uh, so but look I didn't I, I don't claim to have uh, suffered nearly as much as, as many people from the pandemic. Um, you know, certainly not as much as anybody who lost a livelihood or a loved one or suffered or got very sick uh, themselves. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the the lockdown did make me realize just the, you know, how, you know, uh, we can be affected psychologically by uh, confinement, uh, uncertainty, fear, uh, isolation, etc., and uh, just when I see how much, um, you know, when we were, how much different it was for the guys in the Belgica or how much more extreme it was, uh, you know, we compare their experience to ours. We were watching uh, the Tiger King, you know, or I, I don't know if you have right. that. Yeah, we were, we were binging on Netflix and, and perfecting our sourdough recipes and they were uh, yeah. staving off scurvy and a rat infestation. So, um, and, and uh, you know, battling depthless cold and endless night. So, uh, but, but what it did, uh, my takeaway is the, the, what happens at, at the end. And, and, you know, I don't want to uh, be too specific, but it, it uh, makes it, clear that despite all of the suffering, despite all of the enmity uh, that had taken place uh, or that, that, that had plagued the ship, uh, at the end, there is a great moment of cooperation and resilience. And it, it just makes me think that if we, if we band together, uh, we can, we, uh, you know, there's no challenge nature can throw at us that we, that we can't take on. Um, yeah. and, and so uh, hopefully, hopefully that applies to more than just, um, uh, more than just escape from the from the polar ice, and I mean, uh, there's not going to be much ice left soon. So, well, yeah, um, even though they're they're breaking, uh, the South Pole uh, now has just uh, reported a record cold, uh, probably the coldest year on record. Um, so that's yeah. the, the the great exception. But uh, but still, um, whether it's a pandemic or climate change, uh, those are uh, challenges that you know we could if we brought the ingenuity of a cook to it and uh, the fortitude of an Amundsen and the the gumption of a Dujarlash, um and we somehow all were able to work together towards this we could we could escape um uh, i think we just leave up to the women the i think i think we just leave up to the women because yeah men are, yeah. Men are good at getting trapped in ice and, and some and somehow getting out right uh and well, fucking <laughs> like the hubris that took them there women just like Okay, guys, let's yeah. look after this a little better, shall we? Nice one, man. Look after yourself, okay, Julian? All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again. Cheers, buddy. Bye.